Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got Rohit Bhargava with me today with non obvious how to think different, curate ideas, and predict the future. Wow. Those sound like awesome things to learn about. So let's jump right in here. Rahit, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, so why did you think this book was important to come out now? Well, I think for me, this was uh, one of those books that was kind of five years in the making. I'd been producing a annual trend report just out of interest for myself, uh, really. I mean, it started off sort of as a blog post. And uh, over the course of five years, I just kept producing these annual reports that spotlighted 15 trends that I thought were going to change business in the coming year. And looking back, it, it uh, was kind of scary how often they described something bigger that then turned out to be quite a big movement in business. And so finally, this year, 2015, I decided to write a book not only about the 15 trends for 2015, but also how do I come up with these trends? How do I spot these ideas? How do I put the pieces together? Hmm, nice. And this has no correlation with your other book, uh, Lycanomics? Um, not really. I mean, Lycanomics, actually, I mean, the correlation, I guess, is Lycanomics as a concept. Um, and that book was all about why we do business with people that we like. The concept for that started off as one of the trends from my, I think, my 2012 report. So then it kind of blew out into an entire book the following year. Okay. So which book do you think is better to read first? Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, you know, Lycanomics is great from a, it's got a great leadership message. Um, You know, so if you've got a team of people or if you're trying to really figure out how to influence people or build your personal relationships in order to power your own career or or maybe a startup that you've started, Lycanomics is a great read for that. Um, I think if you want to be ready for the future or kind of think about a new way of thinking to take better advantage of the ideas that you do have and just get better about collecting ideas, non-obvious is, is kind of focused on that. Now, uh, it's it's about 15 business trends. Did you pare it down for more or it just happened to be 15 that it came to? No, every year I, uh, I go through and sort of narrow it down based on ideas and things that I've collected and I kind of curate them together into what could be a trend. And every year I end up with probably about 60 possible trends. And then it narrows it down. I start combining different trends. I do more research. So it really is kind of tough to get down to 15. But that's the arbitrary number I sort of selected that I was going to use for every report. Hmm. For people that aren't uh, familiar with with how to do something like this and and basically how to study what's happening now, study what's happened in the past, and then uh, postulate what's going to happen in the future. Um, do you think it's it's a relatively hard thing to do, or is it more of a mindset? Uh, I mean, it's both. It is not a difficult... I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, but the mindset is uh, an easy one to start to adopt if you're just more conscious of it. Uh, it's sort of like I just started teaching a, a public speaking course at uh, Georgetown University, and one of the things that I told my students is if you're conscious of the times when you say, um, uh, you know, in the middle of sentences, you can start to eliminate those, but you have to be aware of the fact that you're doing it. And I think ideas are sort of similar when it comes to trying to collect them and find meaning in how they relate to one another. 
if you can just add a little bit more discipline into the way that you do it, you can start to uncover the patterns between those ideas. Yeah, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head is being conscious of yourself more uh, is the best way to be able to improve yourself. And, uh, you know, speaking in public, for sure, the ability to put a pause instead of an ah in there, because basically every language has a word that you stick in there when your brain disengages from your mouth and you actually think about what you're going to say next. It's the trick is just using nothing instead of uh, some sort of word or sound. That's right. Got three parts here, and then you've got the, the appendix, which is, is pretty viscous. Uh, how should I approach this book? Can I jump into it in any section that I'm interested in, like in part three, chapter 20, how to use customer journey, mapping trend workshop, or should I kind of be reading all the way through from the beginning so I finally get to that section? One of the quotes that I love and I actually included in the book is something that Isaac Asimov said, who's a big hero of mine, not just because of his science fiction writing, but also just because of how prolific he was in writing about all sorts of things from Shakespeare to the Bible to just, you know, all sorts of topics. And one of the things he said when he described himself is that he wasn't a speed reader. He was a speed understander. And I think for me, what that meant from a writing point of view as an author was I'm writing a book that people can dive into and dive out of. It's a business book. It's not a novel. And so I don't expect people to read it cover to cover, nor do I think that everyone who reads any business book should put too much pressure on themselves to read it cover to cover. I mean, if you spent 20 bucks on a business book or 15 bucks on a business book and you got one actionable idea out of it, I'd argue that that's money well spent, even if you only read three pages of the book. Yeah, good point. Is there, I mean, what part of the book is going to get help people get their head around the concept of thinking ahead? Almost like thinking like a science fiction writer where it's like, okay, we're here now. What's going to be happening next year? What's going to be happening in 100 years? And backtrack from there. Yeah, so if I was to get really actionable, I'd say, um, and I'm sort of flipping through the book right now, if you've got the print edition of the book, the two best pages for you will be uh, page 60, no, page 59 and page 33. And the reason why I say that, assuming you're not sitting in, <laughs> with the book in front of you, is because page 33 has what I call the five habits of trend curators, which are the three five principles for how to train yourself to start to be what I call a trend curator, which is basically an idea collector. It's somebody who spots ideas and instead of being observationally lazy, right, walking down the street, looking at your phone instead of looking up, you become observationally conscious. And because of that, you capture these ideas. So page 33 is the five habits, which we could definitely talk about. And uh, page 59 is the 15 trends with infographics for each trend. So, and then literally the book has like tabs across the side of it. So you can flip to any one particular trend. Each trend has three ways to use it in your business. So it's meant to be a very actionable jump in, jump out, only read a piece of it type of book if you want to read it that way. Yeah, it's interesting because those two sections you talk about is basically the bridge between uh, section one and section two. Uh, so you're really getting down to some uh, interesting uh information in that in that part uh so you're getting really down to, to like the 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 five habits and stuff like that very early on in the book so for people that read the book i totally agree get into the five habits because then suddenly the book becomes alive it's like oh okay now i okay and then you start jumping around and it helps you kind of 
I don't know, uh, re-envision the reality around you. I know that sounds a little bit airy-fairy, but it's true. I mean, it, it, you become conscious on a totally different level when you start consuming all the stuff that you're putting in front of the, your Facebook uh, posts that your friends are sending you, the stuff you're reading on LinkedIn, reports that you're reading, you'll start to be able to see patterns and, and say, oh, okay, I see this goes in with this theory I'm thinking of, and you just start collecting these facts, and after a while, it, they, it kind of resolves itself. Do you think that's a, a relatively accurate strategy for, for to move forward, or have I missed major parts? No, I think that's relatively accurate. I mean, I think one of the things that we as humans tend to do, and actually technology makes this way easier to do in a negative way, is capture ideas for later digestion that we never return to, right? I mean, you think about like how many things have you bookmarked on a web browser or put into, if you're an Evernoter, right? You just kind of put into the, the funnel of stuff that you've saved for some time but you never actually go back and look at that stuff, right? I mean, you're sitting, the common example too is like you're sitting in a conference, you hear an inspiring speaker, you write down a page of notes from that speaker. A year later, if you were to think, okay, who was that guy? Where are those notes that I wrote down when I was listening to that talk? They're gone. Uh, Most of the time, we just kind of lose them. And I think one of the things that I try and tell people to do is, Set yourself a timetable, whatever that timetable is going to be. Now, mine happens to be an annual timetable. And so what I do literally is on January 15th, which is also my birthday, right? I happen to start the trend collection process for the following year. So January 15th of this year, 2015, I started my collection process of ideas that I'm going to eventually use for my 2016 report. And then I have a timetable of about October when I go back to all of the things that I've collected throughout the year, everything I've written down from listening to a speaker, every article I've ripped out of a magazine, every uh, news story or, or YouTube video that I've bookmarked and saved in a specific place, and then I take uh, a month to go through all of these different things and start to group them together based on similar ideas, big topics. And that's kind of the process of how I define what these trends are, by finding the connections between things that I've collected over the course of an entire year. Well, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, and you know what, uh, I'll just jump in here. My birthday is January 15th as well, so that's just so weird. Oh, that is weird. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, Martin Luther King's birthday is January 15th too, as you definitely know. It's, it's a very cool birthday date. You know, I, I've done similar stuff, but more using uh, blog posts as a mechanism to collect and actually had a, a, an ongoing blog about stuff that I thought was interesting. And and. I still go back to it. I mean, I don't add to it anymore, but I go back to it. Some of that stuff is still relevant. And I think that's kind of the essence of this book is the stuff that you think's cool now or you say, wow, that's really interesting. It's definitely worth keeping and storing in a place that you can uh, rapidly search because in the future, somebody's going to ask you something relevant and you'll be able to answer their question by just going to that particular post and say, oh, well, you should check out this post. I think it'll help you out. And so the effort that you put in to create that post, you get to reutilize that again and again and again for years to come. And I think that's great value. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting for me has been going back and looking at the trends from previous years. I mean, anytime you do something like this where you say, these are the 15 trends for 2012, And now, three years later, you have the chance to go backwards and say, well, okay, was I 
was I right? Was I off the mark? Which ones actually panned out to be true? Which ones are still accelerating as trends? And so one of the things I did, and you mentioned this earlier, is I did a pretty detailed appendix for this book that looks at every single one of the trends from previous years, so more than 60 trends, and says which ones were right, which ones were on the mark, which ones weren't. It grades them by letter and says, here's why they panned out to be true, or here's why they didn't. Do you think it matters whether a trend comes true or not, or, or it could have been a trend that then peters out and loses its uh, acceleration? Look, uh, I don't ro- overly romanticize trends. I mean, I think <laughs> the value of, uh, I, they're nice to name, and I have a lot of, I enjoy doing that, right? I enjoy the process of finding an idea, naming it, putting some structure around it. I mean, that's fun for me, right? I'm a geek that way. But Trends at the end of the day are just inputs into your action, right? And if a trend set helps you to say, okay, well, here's how I might want to structure my business, or here's how I might want to inform the next marketing campaign I do, or here's the next business I might want to invest in, or here's the next job I might want to take, right? I mean, the trends help you understand the world as it is today and as it's going to be in the short-term future. And I think that has a lot of value for these types of decisions that we make. Should I start this business or not? Should I partner with this person or not? Should I take this job or not? I mean, that's really what I'm trying to write about, giving people that external perspective to say, look, this is the world and how business is moving as it's painted as a picture by someone who's spending a lot of time doing this. So one piece of it is, if you had that knowledge, how would it power your decisions? And the second piece is, if you actually could do this for yourself, wouldn't that make your career better or your business better or make you more profitable? Let's talk about the, the three, three elements of trend, idea, impact, acceleration. Uh, do they come in that particular order? You notice an idea, you notice the impact it's got, and then you notice how, it's, how quickly it's being talked about? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, in the book, I, I use it as a Venn diagram. So it's, you know, in, in any Venn diagram, it's pretty hard to assign an order to it. I mean, it's just three circles that intersect. But I think it does, for me, a lot of times, start with the idea. Uh, but sometimes you might notice an impact, people behaving differently for some reason that you're not quite sure of. And then the idea is what you actually have to chase to say, look, all these people are now doing this one thing differently. Uh, what does that mean? What's the idea behind that that actually describes why this is happening? Uh, yeah, and, and what's interesting about the, the the Venn diagram he mentioned is in the middle, it says a non-obvious trend. Is that the type of trends that you're interested in is the non-obvious ones? I mean, it sounds pretty obvious when I say it that way, but you know what I'm saying. It's like, oh, that sounds interesting. That sounds like a trend. I think I'm going to follow it. But you've actually got a process where you can take that and strip it down uh, to prove uh, through a series of questions and saying, oh, okay, that definitely is a trend, and I like it because it's so non-obvious. Yeah, the non-obvious thing, I mean, obviously the book is titled Non-Obvious, so that's pretty important to me. But <laughs> the, um, yeah, the, the idea, the inspiration behind that was I spent a lot of time looking at trend reports or predictions. I mean, hey, at the end of every year, every magazine, everybody's talking about, like, this is what we should watch for 2015. And the problem was a lot of these trend reports sucked. You know, they just talked about things that were either blatantly obvious, right? I mean, for some people, like a trend, for example, that they put out there was 3D printing, which is not a trend. That's just like a technology that exists. There's no sort of uh, acceleration or impact around 
just that itself. You have to actually be more specific than that. Um, but the other problem was, and I use this joke uh, often because it's so true, is the person who makes the hammers would declare 2015 the year of hammers because they want to sell more hammers. right? And that's what a lot of trend reports are out there, especially when you look at blog posts. It's just people declaring that year the, tr- the year of whatever they want to try and sell because it's self-serving. And for me, I, I really I didn't want to do a trend report that was, here's all the financial services trends. I didn't want to do a trend report that was, here's the trend that helps me sell more stuff. I wanted to do something that was relatively unbiased, that took more of a journalistic and research-based approach, but also didn't wallow in its own academic self-servitude, right? Like something that didn't become so obtuse that people couldn't really approach it or understand how to apply it. That's very interesting because we've kind of, you know, where we're in, in the world of big data and, and collecting information isn't really the problem right now. It's actually sifting through the information and the, the tsunami of, of junk information that's out there is absolutely staggering. And I think the uh, a trend has been coming off, it's been had some momentum for quite a long time. And basically the people that spend the time curating through the BS and saying, well, actually, this is what you should really read. And I try and do that as much as I can on my social media um, platforms is saying, you know, check this out. This is interesting stuff. And then I can go back and look at the stuff that I've been posting and actually be fascinated because I've forgotten the stuff that I've, I've talked about. So, oh, my God, I remember that was so cool. And sometimes I'll repost it. Yeah, I think that there is a growing sense, and I totally believe this is accurate, that Uh, content marketing is being overvalued right now and that adding more noise into this content ecosystem is really not valuable. Whereas if you can find those people who are the natural curators, right, who are the sort of librarians that help you find the things that matter, and I'm not talking about an algorithm, right, because we all know that Google can help you find stuff, but also every search that you come up with gives you 2 million search pages. Now, you may only look at the top 10 results, but the fact is there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, And it's not all bad. I mean, there is some good stuff that Google's not going to be able to find for you. And so when you start thinking about the value of curation as a skill set, I think, I mean, way back in 2009, I was writing about curation and content curators being a job of the future. And I think we're starting to get to that point now where that's actually accurate. People are hiring these individuals who are highly, who've built a highly tuned expertise on a particular topic who are going out there and saying, look, this is the best stuff on the internet about this topic that you should read. Well, two things. One is I get really frustrated with people that, um, checking out on Facebook or Twitter and they'll ask stupid questions like, well, what about this? And I just copy their question. I'll paste it into you to, into, um, Google, I'll look at four or five answers, I'll take one link, and I say, well, how about this as an answer? I mean, how lazy are these people? Are they just unconfident, that they just don't have the confidence to believe that Google's able to do that? Or they just don't understand how Google works? Well, I think that we, I mean, people in general are lazy. The reason for laziness isn't that you're kind of a bad, unmotivated person, it's that it's easier, right? And sometimes the easier method becomes the preferred method just because it doesn't take much to do. And so I think uh, part of what we've got to do is figure out what our best method of adding value 
to the world is. I mean, think about the amount of pressure that's on everybody, at least in the marketing space, to become a content creator, right? And so it takes you outside of your comfort zone. I mean, hey, for me, uh, I studied marketing for a long time, but I'm an English major. You know, I've written poetry and plays and, and all sorts of stuff. I mean, I consider myself to be a writer. And so if I come into the sort of role where I need to write something, that's a natural fit for me because I'm already a writer. But if somebody happens to be in the sort of role where now all of a sudden they have to do weekly contributions to a blog or they have to write an ebook or a, or a white paper or something like that and they're not a writer, now you're taking people outside of their natural comfort element and saying, hey, you happen to be the marketing uh, person and so now you're responsible for doing all this stuff even though it's not really what you're great at. The problem is uh – you know, when you go into an organization, or even if you're working in a small organization, the problem is that the way they define jobs is the same that they've been defining jobs for the last 50 or 100 years. It's like, oh, here's the set skill sets. Do you fit the skill sets? Great. And then you go into that job, and maybe 2% of those skill sets are actually needed, and there's 50 other skill sets that are actually needed they never interviewed you for. It's crazy. And Yeah, and, and also like letting people follow what their passion happens to be. I, know, I mean, I know one at one point I was working in a, in a group where we were hiring people to work on social media and digital marketing types of campaigns for our clients. And one of the things we started doing was going out and finding people who were working in marketing but also had a personal blog about something that they loved. And so now we were going out and finding mommy bloggers or food bloggers or fashion bloggers and as soon as we had a fashion client come up or a uh, packaged good company come up that was targeting moms, and you put somebody who's already got their own personal blog and is personally passionate about that thing onto that project, I mean, you can imagine the results you would get and how much better they would be because those individuals actually like that topic and they know something about it and they know the people who are the tastemakers in that category. Oh, Absolutely. Let's talk about one thing that blows my mind, and we, you've kind of mentioned it before, is lists, you know, the 10 top things for this or the five best thises or, or you know, the 50 must-haves. Um, why do people get attracted to lists? Is it is it a human, um, something from our past where we'd really like to have things gathered and giving it a, a finite amount of choices? Uh, I think it may be a little bit of that. Um, I think it's also, I mean, we haven't talked too much about any of the trends specifically, but one of the trends in, in the report, uh, the 2015 report is what I called glanceable content. And glanceable content was kind of about this idea that with our shrinking attention spans, our necessity as humans consuming media to have our guard up because there's just so much stuff that's trying to take our time, right? So we've naturally de de developed our own defenses against that it becomes necessary for content to be um, glanceable. Uh, and what that really means is, is this going to be interesting enough for me to spend my time reading? And so it has to engage our curiosity. It has to create some sort of emotional reaction and cause us to then either do the BuzzFeed type of behavior where we say, oh, my God, the 35 things about Home Alone I never knew. I have to click on that right yeah. now. <laughs> I can't imagine not clicking on it, right? Or using that glanceable... Um, content to say, look, here's the, uh, you know, the secret life of Johnny Ive or something like that, or like the secret design principles of Johnny Ive or something like that, where it's like a long in-depth article, but you know, 
oh, okay, I'm going to save that for some point later because just based on the headline that I glanced at, I know I'm going to be interested in it. And even though I don't have enough time to read it right now, I'm going to save it and I'm going to read it later. Do you think it's been a slowly evolving trend? Because I remember back in the day when I was uh, designing magazines, I was noting, noticing that instead of having these long-form pages and pages of text stories, they were breaking it out. I mean, I think that probably the most traditional thing would be the pull quote. And uh, people would glance at the article, they read the pull quote. If the pull quote grabbed their attention, they may go back to the beginning and read the preface and then, and read, then read the whole article. So it's almost like it's becoming even more stripped down as we move forward and we've got more content that we have to basically skim through to decide what we're going to choose because literally we've got tens of thousands of options every day uh, as far as content consumption and we just cannot, we don't have the time or the bandwidth to read a 1500 word blog post article unless it's critically important and how we make that decision is is pretty arbitrary and uh, it's, it's so much stuff that we're reading it is almost like these knee-jerk reaction. You'll read the first three, three to three to five words in a longer sentence, and stop reading the sentence because you haven't got to the information fast enough. Yeah, I think part of it is that you have more choices, and therefore your time is squeezed. Uh, I think the other part of it is we expect to get uh, the quick version of these things delivered to us, right? So. CNN has a new model of all their stories where they have the headline of the story and then they have bullet points for what's in the story. Then they have the story. So you could just read the bullet points and you would basically get what the story is and you have gotten the information you need and you move merrily on your way. So I think the media is responding to that uh, desire for people to kind of get the quick version of the story. But I think the other thing is people are looking for that point of view also. I mean, there's an email a subscription service called The Skim that has been growing a huge amount. Um, and it's tailored towards women. And it's basically a daily email that says, here's the news of the day. Here's what it means. And here's a sort of highly personal take on it from the founders of this email newsletter. And the newsletter has been growing a huge amount. And I was listening to, I think, some maybe the founders talk about it and the loyalty that, that readers have to it. And there are some readers who literally that email coming in in the morning is their alarm to wake up. Like they've set up their email so that as soon as that comes in, the chime of that email is their alarm to wake up in the morning and read that. It reminds me of, of uh, really a lot of the stuff we've talked about already in this interview, but also some of the stuff that, that I enjoyed watching, uh, which basically people – just redigesting stuff that's being out there. I just don't have time to research all that stuff. Um, this week in tech was one of them, and uh, oh, it's another one. I can't remember. Oh, it's the guys that started um, Dig. That was another. I mean, as as a site, that was amazing. Where you basically went and and people would vote up stories or vote down stories. So I could go there and know that tens of thousands of people have decided. Now, these are these are the cool things that are worth checking out. And a lot of that stuff was the basis for the content that I would redistribute for that day on my different social media platforms. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the rapid growth of Facebook as, a, uh, as the number one referral source for CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, I mean, that's the number one referral source. And I think that also speaks to that idea, the fact that we are relying on our friends in some part, to find the interesting pieces of content. And a lot of times they post them on Facebook. And so we just follow the link and we read that article because one of our friends shared it. 
Now, let's get down to the nitty-gritty because uh, this is interesting stuff. Uh, Part two, the 2015 non-obvious trend report. Out of all these things, we got 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, of course. Out of all of them, for you, what was uh, an aha moment? Something that's like, oh, my God, I totally get that that's going to be happening now. It's going to happen in the future. It's a rock-solid trend. Uh, well, so I'll, I'll share two, if that's okay for two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one that, that I loved and was sort of starting to suspect, uh, but just absolutely loved from this year's report was what I called unperfection. <laughs> unperfection was this idea of being strategically flawed on purpose. And it sort of applies to so many different things. I mean, it applies to being more authentic, showing your behind the scenes moment, showing, sharing the outtakes, uh, products like the, uh, new, that's well, not so new anymore, but the McDonald's egg white McMuffin, which is not a perfect hockey puck like the regular McMuffin. It happens to look like someone actually cooked it, like a human cooked it, um, even though they have the technology to make it a hockey puck, right? The egg technology, but they choose not to use it for this. Um, and I think brands, especially in the food space, are trying to make things look hand-carved, uh, done by an artisan or an individual like Artisan Pizzas from Domino's. So that was one piece of it. You know, the other piece was just the growth of these flawed characters in uh, films and television. You think about like Breaking Bad um, and the hero of Breaking Bad or uh, Game of Thrones and the popularity of that or even like Megamind or Shrek or, you know, all of these bad guys that turn out to be good ba- good guys, despicable me. Um, so I was kind of putting all these pieces together and saying, well, look, one of the ways for these companies, brands, media properties to be more approachable and be more human is to be flawed on purpose. And so that was a really interesting one for me. The second one that uh, that I think was interesting only because it forced me to challenge my own perceptions, which I think sometimes when you're really doing some, some great thinking and research, you'll challenge what you previously thought. And one of the things I previously thought about selfies in particular um, is that they were just this form of narcissistic behavior that all these kids are taking selfies with their selfie sticks. And yeah, I mean, I just turned 40, so I'm not like super old, but I'm not young either. Um, And I would look at that as the ultimate narcissistic behavior. And when I finally started doing some more research on it, I realized that one of the impacts of selfies is all of these adolescents starting to build their own self-esteem and self-confidence through how they share selfies and how they share this version of themselves. And so the trend behind that was what I called selfie confidence. And it was all about this idea that selfies actually aren't necessarily narcissistic behavior. They're actually just the natural process of adolescents trying to find their own voice and way of presenting themselves in the world. It's uh, actually, it's quite true because, um, you know, I've, I've been helping people out with their social media platforms and whatever. And one of the first things I say is like, number one, we're not going for perfection because the more money we spend on this and the slicker it looks, the less people will appreciate it and it'll look like an ad and they won't listen to it. And that's a huge jump that they have to make. It's just like, it's okay to stumble. It's okay to correct yourself. It's okay to say, um, it's just that you have to be passionate about what you're communicating. That's what people want. It's got to be relevant and you got to be so excited about it that you can hardly wait to talk about it. And those are the people that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers on on YouTube is they're into something, they're passionate about it, they want to talk about it, they want to educate people. And really, at the end of the day, 
that's what people want. They want somebody that's somber, sitting in a business suit, and it looks like something on CBS News, and it comes, today I want to talk about X, and da 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 Nobody wants a Walter Cronkite-style reporter anymore. Everybody wants the guy-next-door reporter that's passionate about it because that's why Facebook is so big. You're asking your friends, please tell me what type of car I should get. Because you want their opinion, because if they're passionate about something, they're not going to lie to you. They're going to say, oh, you got to get uh, this type of car. Oh, I'd love to buy a Tesla. It would be the ultimate car. If you had a budget, I would get a Tesla. All those type of, con- of conversations are way more authentic, and you can't even fake that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you think about the, um, the rapid rise in popularity and in, um, just influence of like a uh, this week tonight, and John Oliver, or Stephen Colbert, or um, you know any of those talk show guys, and it's so funny because they all exist in this world that we sometimes just well, the media industry describes as unscripted drama or unscripted talk shows, even though those shows are highly scripted, right? They're just performed in such a way that you associate directly with that one person who is the speaking voice above all of it. Yeah, it's uh, the ability to fool as many people as possible, as often as possible, is the actually you know the golden meme for for anybody that's creating content. And I think these guys are doing a brilliant job. And you can go to people and you can get in very heated arguments that, well, yeah, but John Oliver is just another form of entertainment. It's a it's well formatted. It's beautifully executed. There's hundreds of people involved. He says, "No, no, it's just John Oliver getting up there, and he's I love him, and he's just got such respect, dude." That is not what that show's about. I mean, it, it's it's so, like you said, controlled and, and and produced. So why do people why are people still so gullible about that? Is it because they're the content is that relevant or that entertaining that they say, ah, "I don't care about it anymore." Well, part of it is that I think when you specifically talk about media and talk shows in particular, I think that they all count on a self-reinforcing bias, which is if this person is indignant or angry or exposing something that I also agree should be exposed and am angry about myself, then I'm going to immediately associate with that, right? Which is why a lot of times you'll see like people who are loyal to these shows on either side of the political spectrum are hugely loyal to those shows to the point where they believe that person can do no wrong or say no wrong, right? So I think part of the challenge is being the sort of person, and this is something that we each have to dedicate ourselves to, being the sort of person doesn't just blindly follow the gospel of one of these people because we generally think that they're right about stuff. We have to start questioning and asking uh, these questions and debating for ourselves, right? I mean, it's it's an easier thing for me to say than do in practice. But the reality of media literacy, I think, which is a increasing topic and one that I think more and more schools are going to be teaching to our kids, is you know how do you read or listen to this media and still make up your mind for yourself when it's so expertly produced to cause you that combination of of anger and intellect so that you just really really care. These topics that you're, you know, the trending, they're fascinating. Just the, like, I'm just going to read it, uh, read out a couple of them. Mainstream mindfulness, experimedia, engineered addiction, mood matching, branded benevolence. I mean, oh my God, these are such amazing topics. And I'm conscious of a lot of these um, already as trends. But 
is it that because I'm similar to you and I'm, I'm out there and I'm constantly re-educating myself and, and looking at stuff and reading uh, links that people send me that I, I, can't, I can't see the trend for, or I'm seeing the trends before anybody even realizes that they're trends. But the average person that they go and they're, they're working the nine to five job, they're inundated with day-to-day dramas and stuff. They come home and, oh my gosh, I got to do my laundry and da-da-da-da. When they actually get to sit down and consume stuff, they just don't have time or the bandwidth to research it a little bit more. And we have the luxury of doing that. So they don't see these trends coming and they're quite surprised by books like this. And they say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. When did this start happening? Ah. Yeah, there is a lot of value in <clears throat> going to somebody who pays more attention to something than you have time to pay yourself. And it's kind of the same reason why sometimes we go to experts in various things that we probably could learn to do ourselves if we took as much time as they did. I mean, you think about the classic example is there's a growing number of businesses who actually help you um, – they help you manage your frequent flyer miles, right? Like there's actually a service you can pay that says, okay, help me maximize my frequent flyer miles and how many miles, like for frequent travelers, right? So how many miles I get from this credit card versus that credit card? Do I buy something with this particular affiliate link through Best Buy versus something else? And these are all things that you could technically do yourself. It's just nobody wants to spend that much time doing it. And so they all pay a percentage to these companies and they'll manage it for you. And so I think part of it is this idea of <clears throat> there being value for a reader in particular of one of my trend reports to see how I think about the trends and what I have researched the top trends for this coming year to be because they are not going to take that much time to do it for themselves. I think the other piece of it is even if you took that much time to do it for yourself, you might not end up with the same results uh, that I do, not because I'm inherently smarter, but because my schedule allows me to do things that a lot of people won't have access to. So for example, you know, I go and I speak at about 40 events a year and I listen to other speakers, top speakers in the world on various topics. Most people don't have access to that, right? They can't sit down to dinner with one of these speakers and say, look, what's coming next? What do you think? Right? So part of it is not just looking at things that are out there, but also leveraging these relationships and doing what you're doing, right? Interviewing people and asking those sorts of questions and then using that as an input to say, okay, this is a trend because not only did I see these three magazine articles and this blog post about it and this YouTube video, but I also talked to these three New York Times bestselling authors who all kind of mentioned something along those lines. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating actually because, you you know, you kind of lose perspective of what you're doing and the breadth of it until you run into somebody that actually points it out to you and said, you know, you, you, what you're doing is pretty amazing. And when you're doing it, it doesn't seem that amazing. It just seems like a lot of work to get get it over with. This is something I started. I got to continue doing it. These are the things I have to do every week to make it fall forward and whatever. Man, this is a lot of work, but I enjoy it, so I'm going to keep doing it. You don't perceive it the way other people perceive it. Yeah, that's right. I'm curious. Let's talk a little bit about uh, disruptive distribution. Yeah, so disruptive distribution was um, the idea that now the channels that we use to buy the things that we buy are inherently shifting to the point where, you know, one of the most well-documented parts of that is uh, that we can now buy things directly that we used to have to go through middlemen to buy. So that's one piece of that. Um, But the other piece that's really interesting is, well, in this world where distribution itself is becoming disruptive, 
the idea that we can start our own sub businesses in this world or have the information to reach people directly is a really powerful thing. I mean, you know, you think about like entertainment and unbundling entertainment, which is like a big topic in the media industry. It's like, you know, can I get my HBO directly? Do I need to have my cable channels with a hundred different channels if I only watch three of them? Why can't I just subscribe to those three, right? Or uh, you think about academic journals, which is like the world's biggest um, uh, underappreciated monopoly, right? Because in most <laughs> yeah. um, industries, I mean, you think about like the science industry, like uh, chemistry, there's a academic journal of chemistry and these journals control what gets published and they charge exorbitant amounts of money to universities, um, some of whom can barely afford to pay and they don't pay the academics anything to publish their research. They're just, you know, if you get your research published there, it's considered a huge sign of credibility and respect so the authors of studies don't get paid anything. Um, so it's sort of a shifting model where multiple people now in that space are saying, well, why is it this way? Why shouldn't researchers be able to publish their work, get paid for that publishing, and at least be access, have access to get grants and things like that for their research. And so they're shifting that, that model. So I think there's many industries where you think about the old way that they, the products and services would get delivered. I mean, you think about the method of dealers with cars, right? Like, why do I have to, if I'm going to buy a BMW, go to a dealer? Why can't I just buy it from BMW? Right. And you think about what Tesla is doing, where they're sort of throwing out that dealership model and saying, okay, we're going to do it all direct. If you buy a Tesla, you buy it from Tesla, not from the local dealership of Tesla. Yeah, well, there's certain products that work that way, for sure. Like Tesla is a perfect example because it's all about the benefits of Tesla and they're bucking a major, major, major trend. Basically, they're reinventing uh, the way not only – that you buy a car, but how you make a car and the functionality of that car and the value and uh, free electricity for the for your existence. I mean, it's crazy what they're offering. And I don't think you could actually communicate that in traditional ways because people just wouldn't believe you. You have to go to the source and say, no, this is it, man. We're, <laughs> we're the guys making it. And yep, that's true. I know it sounds crazy, but yep, that's what we're offering you. It's a very enticing experience. Yeah. And I think that if you consider decoupling that from the dealership experience, which is something they've tried to do and they've met with a lot of legal um, pushback on that, right? Because uh, a lot of the legislation in some of these places say that you're not allowed to, like you must purchase these products through the dealer. And the dealer networks, of course, are resisting Tesla's ability to do that because if Tesla's allowed to do it, what's to stop BMW from coming along and saying, uh, we want to do it too, right? <laughs> Well, maybe if they do it, if it just for electric cars, 100% electric cars, you're allowed to do it. And gas guzzling cars, you have to use the old system. Let's talk about small data because there's been so many books written about big data. Uh, why small data? Small data to me was the idea that uh, the data that's actionable is the small pieces of information that are, uh, that are captured by us on ourselves uh, as much as captured by large companies on our behavior that we do primarily online. So if you think about the Internet of Things, which has been a big buzzword recently, this idea that all sorts of objects, like your tea, your tea kettle, would be connected to the Internet. 
So now you can actually get some smart analytics on your tea kettle, how long it takes for you to boil tea, what time do you drink tea, like all sorts of stuff. And you might sit there and think, okay, well, who cares, right? Why would I want any of this stuff? But the fact is this data is being generated and being saved. And if it had value for you, right, if, for example, you could create some sort of value that said, okay, now that my, the internet knows that I brew tea at 7.45 a.m., it might also know that that's the time when I'm ready to listen to a podcast uh, from my favorite show. And so maybe my tea kettle boiling can automatically trigger the podcast to begin playing in my radio in my shower. And so I can start listening to the podcast while I'm getting ready while my tea's brewing, right? So, I mean, there's all these connections that we make. But these are all small data connections. They're insignificant to large companies unless they become actionable. And so for me, the trend of small data was as we as consumers have more control over the small pieces of data that we own, like the data that our Fitbit generates on our behalf or the tea kettle or any of these sorts of things that is data that we are collecting, we now have the power to say, do we want to share that data with these companies in order for them to provide us better services? So now you might imagine a moment when you could walk into a retail store and the retail store will say, would you like to share your Fitbit data with us so we can help you find the right products, the right shoes based on how often you run and how far you run and what terrain you run on, right? But that's not data that the shoe store has unless we choose to give it to the shoe store. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing with, with big data, it's all about um, vast amounts of information and they're trying to track trends and and algorithms so they can improve their bottom line and this is the thing that people don't understand about a lot of this data they go oh they're taking all our data and there's no privacy well you know a lot of these guys they don't really care what you're talking about is very personal data and i think it has incredible value and i I think uh, smart organizations that kind of get uh, the technology savvy of, of the people that use their products, let's say Apple, going into an Apple store and say, well, look, at if you share X amount of information and uh, punch it in and maybe fill out this form, we'll give you 10% off on your purchase today. Before we go, where should people go to learn more about the book, not specifically about buying the book, but but learning more about trends and, and stuff like that, your blog and, and – uh, other platforms. Yeah, so um, my website has a lot of details about me. It's just my first name and last name.com, so rohitbargava.com. And specifically about the book, uh, where you can get not only more details about this year's trend report and the trends from this year, but also free access to previous trend reports as slideshare presentations, uh, which are all up there totally for free. And also a 80-page excerpt, if you fill out the, the form, uh, you'll automatically get an excerpt from the book, is all available at nonobviousbook.com. Before we go, one final tip for our listening audience. What, the, what should they do today to become more conscious of non-obvious trends? I think start to realize the moments in your daily routine when you become observationally lazy when you don't pay attention to what's going on around you. And if you can just train yourself to not do that, uh, to start to pay attention to things that seem insignificant, I guarantee you those ideas for how business is changing, how the world is changing, how people are behaving will start to appear to you. It's almost like a magic uh, haze gets gets kind of lifted off of the, your, your glasses and you can now see things that you didn't notice before just if you start paying attention. 
We've been chatting with Rohit, and uh, gosh, there is so much more we could be talking about about this book. There is an amazing amount of information. Highly recommend you check it out. Non-obvious, how to think different, create ideas, and predict the future. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show, and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.